This is Health Unabashed on Healthcare Now Radio, a show that explores the world of health and wellness innovation, enabling sustainability, equity, and access to patient-centric care. I'm Greg Masters, executive producer and co-host, and I'm joined by my esteemed colleague, digital health advocate, author, and global thought leader, Gil Bash. Together, we bring you thought-provoking people, groundbreaking ideas, and the transformative companies making a difference. Today, our guest is Sasha Zeich, host of the popular podcast, Faces of Digital Health. Sasha is an internationally recognized digital health moderator and speaker focused on global healthcare digitization. She is a former healthcare journalist and a patient advocate. And with no further delay, Gil, the mic is yours. Greg, I want to thank you so much for the gracious introduction. It's such a privilege. You know, we're in the midst of our second season together, and I'm thrilled that we've been asked back, probably because of your amazing role as executive producer of this show and others, and your own show, Pop Health Week, with uh, Fred Goldstein. Uh, Continue to do the great work, Greg. And everybody, we have probably one of the most amazing guests on today's program. Shasha Zeit is, to me, one of the the top people around the world, really around the world, when it comes to understanding the face or faces of digital health. She's also the popular host of the program, Faces of Digital Health. I had the privilege of actually joining her for a mini segment recently um, at Health, and uh, we sat side by side in a Zen booth and, um, and really talked about what was happening at Health Without Vowels and really explored what is the promise and potential and pitfalls of augmented intelligence, AI. Uh, We're going to explore that a little bit, but for anybody who has listened or seen Sasha and the Faces of Digital Health, it is a much-watched show, and she has the most incredible guests. But aside from that, she could go on her own show as a solo. She's probably one of the most knowledgeable people around digital health applications in the world. And her knowledge is not just about the technology or the the gee whiz, whiz bang of the ideas. She knows policy. She knows economics. She knows regional landscape. Joshua, welcome to Health Unabashed. And I I know you started out your career as a a full-time journalist, and now you're working with Better and you're doing all these amazing things. But I, I wanted to go back in time before you were doing this podcast program what led you to sort of jump into this with both feet? It was, it strikes me as a very bold move. And you have really become worldwide popular. By the way, to our listeners, Shasha and I shared sort of a stage in Tel Aviv, Israel, I think a little more than a year ago, with mm-hmm. um, a whole conference that included uh, France and Israel and other nations. Uh, she was one of the great moderators of, of a large panel of worldwide experts. I was mesmerized by, by her ability to really command that panel. I think there was like seven or eight people on your panel, and you really like, you were in charge. So again, welcome. Uh, Tell us a little bit about your journey for those people who don't know you and will know you soon. Um, Thank you, Gil, first of all, for uh, all the kind uh, words. I really feel privileged to to be here. So um, I uh, kind of decided to to start um, kind of exploring healthcare from the professional side in my 20s after my editor said that I should specialize for one area. So I was working for a weekly magazine here in uh, Slovenia and uh, healthcare was one of the topics that nobody really covered. So uh, 
I decided to do a master's in healthcare management and economics because I was a chronic patient already for six years at that time. And I figured, you know, I've got all these questions as a patient and why not upgrade the, that experience with the knowledge of how healthcare management, healthcare economic uh, works, and then uh, have the opportunity to also talk to, to clinicians to, to get that perspective. So that was where my journey began. And then in 2015, I started noticing how basically healthcare um, or digital health and technology are becoming so embedded in, in medicine and healthcare delivery that uh, we just should start caring more about that uh, from the reporting perspective. Because in the magazine that I worked for uh, then, it was a medical journal, a monthly journal for clinicians. We mostly focused on clinical guidelines in novelties, in therapies and things like that. And um, yeah, that's why I started the, the podcast, which was at that time called Medicine Today on Digital Health. And then when I left the magazine uh, to transition to the startup, world. I uh, continued the show. I just renamed it uh, Faces of Digital Health. And in total, it's soon going to be the seventh anniversary of the show. So it's been quite a long time. That's incredible. Well, again, I was on the show. I've watched the show many times. Incredible guests always. Um, obviously, it's your reputation that attracts people to get on the other side of the microphone with you. Um, and and I have to say, you're you're one of the most uh, interesting people when it comes to expansive knowledge because of your knowledge of economics and policy and the technology itself. You know, I, I wanted to get your take on this from, from a global standpoint. Um, about two years ago, probably influenced by COVID, digital health was just exploding. Uh, both the money pouring into it, people sort of mining new technologies that deal with disparities, adherence to care, uh, remote patient care. It seemed like it was unstoppable. And then suddenly, I see that investment has dropped as much as 40% in many cases into the field. And, you know, I, I've seen the data and the granularity of the data. Um, I, I, don't, I don't think it's really just purely that the investment has dropped. I think from what I've seen, it's gone to earlier stage investments where investors have much more voice more risk, perhaps, but more voice in the the venture itself. But I just wanted to get your top line. You know, you're you're still a journalist now. You're an audio journalist. You're a writer. You're speaking to incredible people. What's your thirty thousand meter or foot view of digital health right now in this climate, the post COVID era? I am actually quite uh, worried or surprised by the significant drop that's happening. I think like what we saw uh, was that there is uh, a lot more interest into digitizing things, especially in Europe, uh, because, you know, after, b before COVID, um, it seemed as if the investment in healthcare IT wasn't taken as seriously as it was after um, COVID hit. So that's still present. So funding to actually get um, uh, hospitals on a higher level in the healthcare digitalization sense is still there. Um, but the, the challenges in terms of how fast you can actually introduce something have not uh, been diminished. So it's very easy to do a pilot uh, in a hospital, but it's very difficult uh, to to scale. Um, so, for example, um, because the legislation is different from country to country, and even 
hospitals want different things. If you are a vendor, you will know that each client is going to have uh, different uh, desires around configurations. And when you multiply that issue with the issue of language and everything else uh, in Europe, it's uh, easy to understand why you are going to have multiple suppliers providing basically the same localized solutions on different markets, just because the whole scaling is, is so difficult. Um, to go a bit broader, I'm quite uh, concerned, as probably many, uh, many other people around, what's going to happen with digital therapeutics, just because of all the excitement that we saw around it, maybe even two years ago, is kind of uh, down because of the th situation with peer therapeutics, because of other situations. We, you know, Germany, we, before this discussion, we mentioned how Germany created this wonderful framework for startups to be very clear about what they need to do to become a, on the national formulary for prescribing and reimbursement of these solutions. But what that framework didn't solve is all the marketing and awareness uh, challenge that startups need to overcome to actually convince the clinicians to prescribe these solutions. And the second thing that also happened in Germany is that um, in the initial stages, if you were um, approved as a DIGA, it was up to you to decide what the price will be and uh, healthcare insurances were willing to pay for that. But after a year, they would reevaluate your impact and adjust the price uh, based on that. And because after a year, prices was, were slashed so much, some companies even went uh, bankrupt. So now it's very interesting to observe how France, as the next country that's trying to create a framework, a very clear pathway, which I wrote about uh, in quite detail for my uh, newsletter. Um, so France also de designed a framework. And what they did differently is that uh, in their pursuit of becoming a digital health leader in Europe, they're investing also in the upskilling of the workforce, in the awareness among the public around the meaning of digital uh, health. And uh, even before companies apply for the French DIGA, if I call it that way, they um, there's already kind of classes of applications so you can approximately know how much you're going, going to get reimbursed. And with that, France wants to uh, avoid that um, shock that companies uh, fell into after a year in Germany. So um, yeah, it, it depends on who you talk to, but we still have a lot to figure out around uh, digital health applications and how to, to fund them. And that's just the thing, you know, uh, at the end of the day, digital health is very quickly expensive because the people that develop these are not a cheap workforce. So one of the things that I was kind of wondering is, you know, the US has spent twice as much um, for healthcare as an average European country. So between nine to 13 percent compared to 18 or 20 percent that the, the US spends. But I'm wondering to which extent is um, potentially healthcare going to become more expensive also in Europe, not just because of the aging population, but if you want to introduce all these technologies, you know, the money is, the funding is going to have to, to come from, from somewhere. So uh, that's, uh, you can stop me. <laughs> at no, I, I think, I think, I think you, you've really touched on a key point that I don't think people think about, which is 
um, you know, shifting populations. Historically, Europe was a younger population, post-World War II younger population than the United States. Um, the United States, like Japan, has become more of an aging population. But you, you've really hit on some things that I don't think we think about um, all that much, but we should. There are some companies in digital health that are acknowledging the fact that we tend to forget that digital therapeutics are being compared by physicians and payers alongside of therapeutics, molecular therapeutics. And, and so it's not enough to say the digital therapeutic is less expensive. The, the, I think the proof point is, is to say clinically it's, it's equally effective um, or, um, or more effective or it's less effective, but it produces a good clinical outcome at a reduced cost. I, I think that a lot of digital health companies thought all I need is regulatory-wise, a 510K FDA approval, and I'm golden. And then all of a sudden, even if they got on formulary, let's say mental health or smoking cessation, um, doctors then said, well, where's the where's the clinical evidence? And the bar to get a digital health therapeutic approved um, in terms of number of patients in a clinical trial historically was relatively low. I think that the companies coming into the field now in digital therapeutics have sort of a biopharma-like mindset. I think that they're they're looking at the magnitude of patients they'll need in a clinical trial, the design of the trial. I think they're pursuing this as, as a new path to therapy, much like medical device companies have to in terms of looking at the bar they need to jump over in order to say, this is a safe and effective therapy. And so I think the cost of getting in the game from a digital therapeutic standpoint has changed radically. Um, you know, I think you're you're spot on with that. I think that's it's a little more complex. An another thing I'd love to get I'd love to get your take on because you you look at Europe super closely, um, but but you're traveling around the world. After all, the last time we got together was just a few months ago. I guess it was uh, Las Vegas or L.A. One of those. Great, great West Coast cities. Um, I think it was Las Vegas. And the reality, I think, is happening also is investors are seeing digital health as somewhat risk-oriented. I think historically they said, gee, this is simple. You know, do a small clinical trial, get a 510K approval, get to the market, and wow. And now they're realizing getting to the market is half the battle. It's getting on formulary um, so that you know, someone's paying for it has become the major challenge. So I, I, I'd love your, your perspective. I think big investors see digital health as still enticing, but also not without risk. And I think that's why they're going to earlier stage companies, because I think that they can take the knowledge that they gained over the last you know, eight years or so and molded into these um, younger companies. I mean, what's your take on that? Yeah, so several thoughts come up uh, when talking about that. So uh, one is that, you know, it's it's very interesting to talk talk to all sides, investors, clinicians, startups, uh, SMEs, and um, what it, you know, 
like startups need to create relationships in the long run, talk to investors continuously, even if a specific investor doesn't invest in them today, maybe that investor uh, is going to uh, inv um, invest in them in five years or so. But oftentimes startups also feel that they are basically losing time because investors just need them to get that uh, on the ground knowledge and insight and can decide uh, better. Now go to they, market like, without thinking through the implications of that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And just, yeah, basically get the, the actual insights because, you know, the startup founders usually start with point solutions and have a very in-depth knowledge about a very specific thing. And, and that's very useful for an investor. If that investor at one conference talks to five or 10 people like that, you know, it's, it's a huge gain yeah, for an investor. But um, as far as, you know, being aware how much you can get out of investing in digital health goes, I really liked the uh, latest uh, newsletter from uh, Chrissy Farr, Second Opinion, where she basically says that we should not expect as many unicorns is in digital health as we do. It's just a different industry. So the appetites should maybe be a little bit different in, in this place. And I, I think that was also one of the kind of uh, things that was mentioned uh, in the case of Babylon Health. You know, the investors were not necessarily uh, in it for the right thing, for the better of the patients. And when, when startups are pushed to, to, to grow, that's where real challenges uh, begin if they have to, you know, start claiming things that are not necessarily true. Um, and that's just a general thing to say. Just tuning in, you're listening to Health Unabashed on Healthcare Now Radio. We are in the company of internationally recognized Sasha Zeich, the host of the popular broadcast, Faces of Digital Health. Sasha is a former healthcare journalist and a patient advocate. Stay tuned for the rest of the story. Were you surprised about Babylon, by the way? I honestly, I kind of was. And um, that's because I maybe followed that story a little bit more closely. I saw, you know, the reports around the NHS and how basically um, Babylon started disrupting NHS with the offer of clinicians because it's not, they didn't just have an app, you know, they had actual clinicians as well right. that people were using. Um, I was very disappointed when they moved into the US market. And that's the thing, you know, startups need to grow because of the investor pressure. So they moved to a different market and oftentimes that's the US. And what that means to me is that smaller markets, and you know, I feel that very personally because I'm from a country with two million people with their own language and nobody wants to come here because it's you can't operate in English here and um, the market is simply too small. So that means that we don't have any digital therapeutics and we can often, you know, get left out of these things. So that's some that that's something that I often think about when we think about the access of digital health and healthcare innovation globally uh, and the access in uh, less populated places, in rural, rural places, in less developed countries where you just are not going to go to as a successful company because the buying power is not big enough, the market is too far away, and every market is specific. So you always need to be local uh, if you want to su succeed. You know, last time we were together, um, it was probably one of the first times I've had a very practical talk. You know, I think that, you know, you or I, we're often asked to 
reach into the future, to be visionaries with the knowledge that we've you know, sort of acquired over time. And we had a very practical conversation. You know, we were talking about health and what are our big takeaways, and it was a fa fascinating exchange. Um, I really, again, urge all of our listeners to, to, to follow Faces of Digital Health. It's just an incredible series of conversations. But one of the things I find about AI, particularly Gen AI, is is the practical nature of the technology, the ability to look at health systems inefficiencies and problems and, and aspirations and begin to engage right now. For instance, in this country, electronic medical records are a bit of a mess. And the ability to scrape data off of the EMR and take a look at oh, diagnostic patterns or, or billing codes or, or taking a look at even therapies um, that were missed that would have helped the patient, or even taking a look at the patient's condition over a period of time and saying, did you consider this instead of that diagnosis? No, Gen AI has great application. And when I look at Babylon, uh, you know, one of the things that enticed me about Ali Parsa and Babylon was its early in use of, of, um, of chatbot. And I, I often wonder if people with health concerns right now feel more comfortable with chatbot an AI over speaking to a doctor because it's not intimidating to speak to your laptop screen for five hours asking questions, but it is intimidating to go into the doctor's examination room, put on a gown that opens from the back, sit on some bench with your feet dangling over this, and somebody swoops into the in the um, into the examination room and has eight minutes to spend with you. Chatbot doesn't really care if you spend eight minutes or eight hours. I think it's a success, not because it's better than a doctor. I think it equips the, the person with a health concern to be better prepared to speak to the doctor and utilize the eight minutes. So I, I'd love to get your take on like the here and now of, of digital health technology, not so much what's going to happen in two years or next year. Um, what do you think is going to happen next month? <laughs> so uh, I would say, and just to quickly comment on what you also said, I think it's awesome what generative AI has done for medical note-taking. Uh, I think that's, especially in the US, pretty much clear that it's that's something that's going to be used everywhere soon uh, to, to make note-taking easier. Um, as far as patients go, first of all, you have to be um, cognizant as a patient that you actually prepare for a doctor's visit. And that's still not something that all the patients would be prepared for. But as far as using generative AI for diagnosis and solving your own problems uh, goes, I think you just have to be the question of how does that model uh, actually work is still very present and you have to so i'm, I'm going to give you an example i uh, was using chatgpt to do some research and i asked chatgpt how many insurance companies does netherlands have and it said five and gave me names and i said doesn't it have 20 and it said all oh, right yeah you're right it has 20 and it gave me 20 names and i said but no wait i think i made a mistake and chatgpt said you're right i did a, i made a mistake as well it's actually just five so you really have to know that it can hallucinate etc i wouldn't tr i wouldn't trust it to prepare for my for my doctor's uh visit and that's that's one of the of the really big questions that's currently happening uh in europe and i would say broader as well 
open versus closed AI? Should we have open algorithms and open uh, models that we can test, that we can actually understand, that people can build on uh, versus having closed systems that you will have doubt uh, over because you don't know how, how they're made? You know, you've just said something that I hope everybody sort of focuses in on from this conversation and your other work, which is, I think the person who's in the know, who's cognitively sharp, ChatGPT augments their intelligence. It, it, it's an extension of their intelligence. If you don't know the subject matter you're, you're exploring and you're using augmented intelligence as a tool, um, you can be horrifically misled. So I think that these technologies play to the strength of people who actually know the subject matter as opposed to the people who are dabbling. You, know, you can really tell if someone doesn't know anything about it and they're exploring, uh, it's not going to replace the doctor. Mm -hmm. You know, it's, it's hard for me to believe that in a 26-minute program, in a blink, we've gone through about 25 minutes. And I, I think I would need two hours to really explore everything that you know. Um, first, I want to thank you so much for- Only two? Yeah. yeah. I, I want to thank you like from the bottom of my heart. I, I just, again, I want to share with all our listeners, uh, Tasha Zeit is really one of the smartest people in the business. And her, her wealth of knowledge is composite wisdom. She's speaking to really brilliant people who come on our program. And she's not, just not speaking with them. She's absorbing their knowledge. And it's making you smarter and smarter. Just in the few moments we have left, you know, you're, you're speaking to uh, you know, people who are passionate about our subject matter. A, a takeaway on what can we expect in the coming year with digital health? Um, any few words you can share with us? Oof, that's a that's a tough one. Um, what I can tell you what I'm gonna be looking at. I'm gonna be awesome. looking at I'm gonna be looking at how many uh, digital therapeutics friends uh, implemented. I'm hoping that we're gonna make some progress there. I hope we're not just gonna say that digital health and uh, mobile apps are uh, a hype. Uh, I'm that's what I'm hoping, and I'm hoping to see more uh, introduction of AI also in Europe because we still have a lot of questions around governance and legislation to to answer. So I hope that the legislation is not gonna hinder the development too much, and all the companies are gonna um, escape to other markets. I cannot thank you enough. I'm looking forward to continuing this conversation again soon. Thank you. Me too. Thank you, Gil. And that, dear listeners, is the last note for today's melody. We want to thank our worldwide listeners for tuning in and much gratitude to our special guest, internationally recognized Sasha Zeich, the host of the popular podcast Faces of Digital Health. Keep up with Sasha's work by www.facesofdigitalhealth.com and do follow her on Twitter via at Zaish Sasha. And that's Z-A-J-C-T-J-A-S-A. -A. For more information about Health Unabashed, head over to our program page at healthcarenowradio.com. Catch our show weekdays at 10.30 a.m., 6.30 p.m., and 2.30 a.m. Eastern or 7.30 a.m., 3.30 p.m., and 11.30 p.m. Pacific. Keep the conversation going with Gil and me on Twitter by connecting with us via at Gil underscore Bash, and that's B-A-S-H-E, and Greg Masters, M-P-H, and that's Greg with two Gs, and be sure to tag your tweets with hashtag healthunabashed. Until next time, embrace your passion for better health, 
unapologetically. 